Welcome to the Friends Like Films podcast. I'm Britt. And I'm Greg. And this is the podcast for you to hang out with us for a bit while we discuss a movie one or both of us loves. And for this episode, I can't say either one of us loved the movie we're going to talk about today. Yeah, new movie for both of us. Neither of us had seen it. It's obviously a new movie for everybody. It just came out. Yes. um, We're talking about Hillbilly Elegy later in the episode. New release came out in theaters on November 11th and then on Netflix November 24th, just in time for Thanksgiving. So new new film, uh, very different from our first episode. Yeah, very. <laughs> uh, uh, from heavyweights to this is, uh, I mean, not the obvious logical jump, but, you know, we want to cover all different types of movies on this podcast. We want to cover all different kinds of movies. We want to keep listeners on their toes. So we'll get into Hillbilly Elegy in a few minutes, but what have you been watching this week, Greg? What, what have you been up to? Uh, well, it's starting the season to watch Christmas movies. I've uh, been pulling out a few old classics, watching Mandalorian, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? Uh, that's basically it. Christmas and Mandalorian. That's where I'm at right now. <laughs> what a combination. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it does well. Yeah. What holiday well, movies have you watched recently? Uh, we, I watched the, the, the lame one on Netflix that came out a couple years ago with Kurt Russell, which actually wasn't all that lame, A Christmas Chronicle. My parents want to watch the second one. And I was like, oh, oh there's a second one? <laughs> the second one just came out on Netflix. I like, didn't the even day. know there was a first one. <laughs> yeah. So my parents wanted to watch the second one. And I was like, well, we should probably just watch the first one and not immediately go into the sequel. So we watched that. It was all right. I think. Uh, well, maybe we'll do an episode, but Kurt Russell was pretty good as Santa Claus, surprisingly, but the rest of the movie was just all right. Just all right. Okay. Yeah. I've also been watching some holiday movies. Uh, we watched Elf. Classic. Already. Um, it's only, we're recording on December 5th today, and we've already watched Elf. So, yeah. st- very rarely, Very rarely do you see a movie, like, when that movie came out, I feel like the, you know how people say instant classic? Mm-hmm. Like, that movie came out, and you were like, oh, this is going to be an all-time Christmas movie. Like, the first time you see it, you're like, this is amazing. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen on Netflix, there is the series, The Toys That Made Us. There's the series, The Movies That Made Us, and they just released The Movies That Made Us Holiday Edition. And one of the episodes is Elf, which I actually watched this week as well. And I learned a lot about the production of that movie, uh, from writing it to casting it to getting funding and, and getting it made, I recommend it if you're a fan yeah, of Elf. I, I like that series, The Toys That Made Us and The Movies That Made Us, and I saw that this came out, the holiday version, so I'll get to it eventually for sure. And what else? I watched Happiest Season on Hulu, which I feel like has gotten a lot of viewings. Have you watched it yet? No, not yet. Um, I feel like there's been a lot of new stuff lately, though. A lot. Like, out of nowhere, 2020 was pretty barren, and then all of a sudden, there's been a ton of stuff dropping. I agree. Uh, I just watched Mank last night, which I won't say anything else yet, because I don't know if we're going to cover it in an episode. Yeah, that's one that we're strongly considering, so. Yes. (laughs) I haven't Um, seen it yet. You have. (laughs) I love David Fincher as a director, so 
And yeah, I, 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 Gary Oldman is one of my favorite actors. I love Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman's incredible. Um, I will just say that I enjoyed it, and that's all I'm going to say about it for now. Fair enough. Yes. But, yeah, speaking of new movies coming out, it's that year, it's that time of year where it's it's actually award season for movies, which it doesn't feel like it. This is the time of year where those Oscar contenders are usually released, and we're starting to see some of those. But you're also getting your your year in review list coming out and time magazine just released their best movies of 2020 list topping the list is first cow yeah which to be honest i haven't even heard of i mean a lot of these movies on this list i hadn't even heard of before i saw the list (laughs) yeah i and i was telling i was telling greg this before we started recording i didn't see first cow i saw this list and and decided to rent it it's an A24 film, and I am such an A24 girl, uh, fangirl. I love them so much. But I remember when this movie was released back in February, it might have been, or March, and, and I was like, I'm not going to watch this movie about a cow, A24, just give me St. Maud, which hasn't come out yet either. But <laughs> I, I watched First Cow, and it was actually, I liked it. I found it really comforting. It takes place during the gold rush, so it takes place in the 1800s, and it's these these two pioneers that meet, and they decide to make some money by borrowing this rich person's cow. So they steal milk in the middle of the night to make these biscuits to sell for money, and it's just this slice-of-life movie. Um and it's comforting because it's just them in the wilderness and very bare bones. And yeah, I just I just found it very, just like a nice little escape for an hour and a half. Yeah, sounds good. I'm definitely going to, I mean, now that I see that it's on these top 10 lists, I'm going to check it out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, number two is Collective, which I haven't seen. Nope, neither have I. I've seen very few movies on this list, actually. <laughs> uh, but number three is Trial of the Chicago 7, which, which have you seen. have seen, and yeah, I haven't. Netflix. I actually really enjoyed it, um, based on real events. Yeah. Um, yeah, check it out, guys. It's You can just Google Time Magazine's Best Movies of 2020 and let us know which ones you've seen, which ones you haven't, or which ones you plan on watching. Yeah, I just have to say, though, I think it's, like, one of the most 2020 things ever that the number 10 on this list is Bill, the new Bill and Ted movie. <laughs> like, I, I don't know. I mean, actually, I enjoyed the new Bill and Ted movie. I thought it was pretty funny. But the fact that it's on, like, Time's best movies of, of the year, like, is really a testament to how 2020 messed up the movie industry. <laughs> like, yeah. so many good movies that were supposed to come out that just did not make it. If you would if you were to ask me in September what's going to be nominated at the Oscars this year, I would have said Tenant and Mulan because that's those were the only movies yeah, that Yeah, Sonic the Hedgehog released. is going to be the highest grossing film of the year. <laughs> like, oh my god, 2020 why? Yeah. But going into 2021, we also got news this week about what Warner Brothers plan is. Yeah. Which if you haven't heard listeners, Warner Brothers is going to release all of their films they have scheduled for, for 2021, they're going to be in theaters, but the same day they will be available on HBO Max. Yeah, yeah, and I think available for a month on HBO Max at no additional cost, which is crazy. Um, like Mulan, when it came out on Disney Plus, was an extra 30 bucks, and I don't think they did very well with that. Nobody wanted to pay 30 bucks. Maybe that was just the movie, but I think 30 bucks 
I, I mean, think about any on-demand rental. 30 bucks just seems pretty steep. So Warner Brothers is taking a risk, like putting these up for no extra cost. They might lose a lot of people that, I don't know. You know, maybe they won't lose anybody because the people that aren't going to go to the theater aren't going to go to the theater. I mean, if you're not ready, you're not ready to go and like with the way the world is right now. So maybe they're just counting their losses. Yeah, I, I don't know how this is going to affect the movie theater industry that's already struggling. I, I'm i not going to a movie theater until I have a vaccine, until uh, I have been vaccinated personally. I know theaters are open right now, but I haven't gone. And I don't know. <laughs> the fact that they're like all of 2021, like even going into next award season and they're saying this this is their plan uh, with the news of vaccines coming in the next month um bold strategy yeah it's well it's hard to say what's going to happen with theaters i mean they're obviously not doing well what i hope happens is that when when they do finally reopen it just kind of changes the experience a little bit so i hear that there's a, i mean i've heard that there's a lot of theaters that are trying to do private rentals and maybe that means smaller theaters and not as big of a screen where you can put a smaller group and rent it out privately. So you're not, I mean, you you know, the only people that are in there are people, you know, that's something that people have been uh, exploring. So that sounds cool. I like, I like the idea that private theaters will, or, or smaller businesses, I should say, might rise up out of this, although they're not doing, they're, they're going to have a hard time of it in the meantime. But the people that are getting hit the hardest are are chains like AMC. And if you're a fan of small business, that's not the worst thing in the world for AMC to, like, take a hit. I mean, I think eventually the big studios are going to have to do something where, like, I saw a theory that maybe Disney or Universal will start buying up movie theaters and just have, you'll have, like, a Disney movie theater where you go to see all the Hmm. Disney properties or a Universal theater where you go to see all the Universal properties. And, like, for the big ticket movies, like Marvel movies, Disney movies, um, as I think about it, they're all owned by Disney. But, um, you know, you'd go to, like, a specialized theater where you're just seeing all that stuff in, like, the big screen where you want the big theater experience. And then other than that, you're going to have, like, these small art house theater types and... I think that would be a cool way for it to go. I mean, I've read in a few places people predicting that that might happen, but who can really say? Yeah. The movie theater industry has been losing money now for a while. Um, I've, you know, my career background in consumer research, and I've worked with clients in the entertainment industry, and they've been thinking of ways to make the movie experience different now to make more money for for quite a while. So with the pandemic, it's it's kind of forced their hand to think of something to do differently. I don't think this is, this is definitely, people have been freaking out on Twitter as people do on Twitter and saying this is the end of movie theaters. It's not. No, it's definitely not. It might change the way, you know, the way the, way the movie theater, the way you think of a movie theater might change. The size of it might change. The price might change. The corporate ownership might change and it's going to be rough for a little while, but maybe it'll end up being better. Who knows? Exactly. I love going to theaters and I will definitely be back when I feel like it's safe to do so. It's it's just, there are some movies for me that I, I need to see them in a theater and I've, I've been really missing that this year uh, in 2020. I saw really comforting cozy comfy memory thread on twitter and i don't know if you saw it greg but people just sharing their 
most memorable movie theater experiences just so we could all kind of feel those feels together since we haven't been able to do that this year. Um, I don't know if any particular one comes to mind for you. Uh, well, recently, definitely Endgame, which I know you feel the same way about this, but like, End- I do. Endgame we was saw just, that together. Yeah, yeah. And that, yeah, and I, I love going to the theater for those types of movies anyway, like, regardless of crowd reaction, but the, like, the crowd reaction's part of it, but like, I mean, just the visual, like, being seeing it on a big screen with the huge speakers, and like, there's nothing that can match that, like, immersion in the movie, like, you're really feeling it, like, when you're in a, the- when you're in a big theater for a movie like that which is very visual and like very audio intensive. Um, but yeah, the crowd reaction is like, you can't, you can't understate that because like for some movies, maybe it doesn't matter, but like for a movie like Endgame, I mean, the buildup, it was 10 years of buildup to the end of that saga and just seeing all the reactions. I mean, any kind of shocking twist or like those big moments when everybody was cheering, it's like, if you weren't feeling the emotion, you will be after everybody in the room is reacting to it. You know what I mean? Like people really do kind of, group together like that yeah and I I miss that I miss that connection and also for and I feel like I haven't gotten this in the last couple years but like a really good comedy in a movie theater with other people is another great movie theater experience uh my the best for me was super bad when I saw that in theaters when it came out which we were the perfect age because the characters in that film were graduating high school and I was graduating high school, and so were you, the year that movie came out. Yeah, I I loved seeing that in theaters, but I had convinced my parents, well, it was my dad and another dad, our family friend, and we brought all the younger siblings. I told them it was going to be fine. And so <laughs> I loved it, but halfway through the movie, I looked over at my dad, and he was, like, horrified. He, he was enjoying the movie, but he was, like, horrified for the kids. I think the youngest one was, like, 10. Oh, oh <laughs> 10? Uh, youngest was 10, okay. I mean... They, yeah, I mean, the they, jokes they, did, the jokes didn't go over their heads at that age. No, they knew. I think it was they, just the parents being horrified that the, they didn't want the ten year old there. The ten year old knew what was going on. <laughs> they 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 heard a lot of new things that day. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. Um, so that's our that's our movie news. I think. Yeah, yeah, or just general movie chat. General movie chat, a little chit chat, <laughs> before we get into this very uplifting movie we're going to talk about today. Uh, yeah. Definitely uh, uplifting, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Sarcasm. Mm-hmm. So yes, uh, let's get into Hillbilly Elegy. I'm going to give a spoiler warning. If you are just gunning to watch this film, I suggest you stop this episode and come back to us when you've watched the movie. Yeah, it's a pretty new movie, so I know that probably a lot of people haven't seen it yet, but it's there, it's on Netflix, it's, a, you know, getting Oscar buzz, or it was, and, <laughs> but, uh, look, I think if, if it's, it's a big, it's a big movie that came out this year, there's not many of them, so I think a lot of people probably have seen it already in the first couple of days, but if you haven't, it's one to watch, I think it's worth watching. I, I would never, there's rarely a movie where I would tell somebody not to watch it. Yeah, yeah, rare. There definitely are rare. some, but rare. <laughs> rare. Like if you if you want if you're looking forward to seeing a movie and I didn't like it, please go see this movie. Yeah. So new release, you can watch it on Netflix. But Hillbilly Elegy is actually based on a memoir that came out in 2016 of the same name by uh, J.D. Vance, and he was raised in Middletown, Ohio. 
but his family is from Brehit County in Kentucky. And he grew up in a family with a history of poverty and low-paying jobs and drug abuse and emotional and physical abuse. So the movie jumps back and forth in time from present day JD when he's in law school at Yale and goes back to when he was a kid growing up in Ohio and comparing his past life to his current life and the perspective he has on everything coming out of his childhood in Ohio. Yeah. And, and for the record, neither of us read the book that this is based on. Um, I heard it was really good. Somebody recommended it to me a few years ago and I kind of like it got filed away in the back of my brain, but I never ended up reading it. And I think probably most of the people that watch this movie are going to be in that boat. It was, it was a bestseller the year it came out, but yeah, I just, I don't know personally anybody that has read the book and maybe that's due to where we're from because of what, you know, the movie is definitely about people from a certain area of the country and the problems that they face and specifically comparing them to people from the East coast that are more well off and we definitely are from the east coast so so maybe maybe we're not really the target audience for the book although the film i think is trying to get a a larger outreach so the book came out in 2016 like i said and it came out in an interesting time it came out right before the election uh the same year of the election and because of the election people were focusing on an area of the country that doesn't usually get a lot of attention and the Trump voters and the Midwest. And um, I, yeah, I think, think this guy, I was going to say, I think a lot of people at the time turned to this book as like a, as like a way to explain why people are supporting Donald Trump. And at least, I, and, and I think I'm on both sides. I think a lot of people that, that were supporting Donald Trump read the book at the time and said, yes, this is like speaks to our story. And a lot of people on the other side of the aisle said it and said, oh, maybe that gives me some insight into what these people are, like how these people are thinking. And whether or not that was accurate, I don't know, but was, neither of us has read the book, but this movie then tries to adapt it. So I was talking to my therapist about this book because we were going to do it for the podcast and she had read it and she recommends it to people that feel like they have leapfrogged their parents in terms of financial status, educational status. And she said when the book came out, there were people that gave it a lot of criticism. They felt that it oversimplified the people that grew up in that Appalachian area of the country. Yeah, which is also a criticism that the movie is getting right now. Yeah. So getting more into the film, it is directed by Ron Howard, the Ron Howard. So you already have a big name attached to it. Um, You you know, Ron Howard obviously directed Apollo 13, Beautiful Mind, um, Solo, A Star Wars Story, unfortunately. Um. I actually didn't think that movie was that bad, but I, I mean, any nerdy thing I'm more willing to forgive. So I'm probably not the best judge when it comes to nerdy movies like that. But um, no, I mean, look, Ron Howard's a good director. I think everybody knows that he's made some really classic movies. So he, he knows what he's doing. So having a big name attached to it um, definitely rose the profile of the movie. And I think gave it a chance to be really good. But at the same time, you know, the 
there is a formula that Hollywood sometimes follows when a book like this comes out and it's a big smash hit and there's these book groups talking about it and everybody's naming a book of the month and it's like, oh wait, who are we going to get to make this adaptation? So like it definitely, there's a lot about this movie that fits that bill where it's like Hollywood just wanted to take it and make the, make the obvious adaptation that it was calling for and some people are thinking they missed the mark. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a big part, so you have the director, and then you obviously have the screenplay. So Vanessa Taylor adapted the screenplay from the memoir, and she she's not a rookie. Like, she wrote the Divergent series. She, I mean, The Shape of Water, which won uh, Best Picture at the Oscars, obviously. And then she also worked on Game of Thrones and Everwood. So she, you know, her resume is pretty stacked. So you have her, you have Ron Howard attached to it, and you have it starring Amy Adams and Glenn Close. Yeah, I mean, big names, like, all the way down the list. They got, like, A-list all like all across the board to make this movie. They really went, you know, swung for the fences. Mm-hmm. And we saw, when you watched the trailer, I think we watched the trailer together, Greg, um, and you're like, oh, this has, this is Oscar bait. <laughs> yeah, that was my first reaction. Without knowing anything, really, I knew that it was, I could, it's... And, you know, I don't know if that's, we'll talk more about it when we get into, like, what we liked and disliked about the movie, but people are, I think, rightly criticizing it for being that, and I don't necessarily know if I fully agree with it, but I see why. I see why, like, it seems like something that Hollywood would do, attach all these big names to the project. Mm-hmm. And then another funny thing is Hans Zimmer. And it's funny because when I think of Hans Zimmer and doing scores, I think of big epic movies. I obviously think of Christopher Nolan. Um, But yeah, Zimmer Zimmer worked on the score for this movie. Yeah, and I did at times during the movie notice the music. Like, I thought the music was pretty good. I mean, I don't think it was, like, movie-defining, but it, it set the mood, right, in most places. I think he did a good job. I agree. It's just, again, another big name attached to this film. Right. Like, let's group them all together. Let's get that Oscar. But um, I guess let's just start with opening thoughts. Yeah, I I mean, I, you probably can pick up that I generally agree with the criticism that this was Oscar bait, and they could have done a, big, a better job. I mean, again, we haven't read the book, so I don't... I don't know, I can't say for sure how close they were to, to nailing it, right, as far as adapting the book. But I think that, like, there was an opportunity, and, and, and like you said, this is something that people criticize the book for. I think there was an opportunity to shine a light on these people, like this area of the country and these people that have legitimate problems that don't get talked about a lot. I mean, there's a lot of focus on, on the problems of people in urban communities, people of color, people, I mean... And there's a lot of different groups that are struggling in this country, I guess is the point I'm trying to make. And I think the people in, in at the Appalachian states in these backwoods towns don't, no one ever talks about it. I, like, I don't really ever hear about these people, how, how much they're struggling. And maybe that's due to where we live. And I'm not trying to, to minimize the problems of anybody else, but I guess what I'm trying to say is everybody has problems. And it is, I think there was an opportunity to really shine a light on what these people face, but it felt to uh the scope was too small i think they focused on this one family which they had a lot of problems (laughs) don't get me wrong but like it didn't really highlight like their problems weren't always based in where they were from you know what i mean their problems were based in addiction based in family like a family abuse and emotional abuse and like that can happen no matter where you're from no matter what background you're from yeah exactly i feel like (laughs) and again 
we haven't read the book. So if if the book was oversimplified, and it, it is a memoir, it is about one person's experience. So it is a smaller scope, but I feel like there wasn't enough nuance for me when they were tackling these problems that if, that if, like yes affect JD and his family, but also affect the larger uh, community of that area and we got none of it. It was a lot of like the big dramatic moments of this person's life that shapes them as a kid. Um, for example, you, you see Amy Adams first getting addicted to opioids in her job as a nurse and the big, you know, the big breakdown where the cops show up and this is when JD is a child and you get that and you're like, oh, she, she's addicted now. And you know, it's like that, that one piece of it and you just lose the larger context that makes those bigger moments mean much more. Right. And I think that like the scenes of him and, and, and it's all based on a true story. So I don't want to say that this is like bad story writing because some part of this is what actually happened to this kid. So like, it's not like you can't, you can't, you can't just change the story, right? It's a memoir. So it's based on what really happened to him. So this is, so I can't criticize it on that level, but you have to decide what, if you're, if you want a message to be part of your movie, like you have to kind of decide what story you want to tell. Like, so all these scenes with him at law school where he's clearly not fitting in because he's this hillbilly. He doesn't know what fork to use. He doesn't know about wine. And like, that's, it was like really hitting you over the head with like, Oh, I, this is like, and that's the part where I'm like, Oh, are you trying to say that like these people have these problems where they can't fit in with the rest of the society because of the way they were raised? Like, is that what you're trying to say? Are you trying to say that he, the only way for him to get out was to fit in with the, with the Ivy League crowd? Are you like, or is it the story about his family and the addiction? It felt like there was two kind of, two different messages going on. Like, was it an addiction family abuse story? Was it about him escaping his past? Which there's elements of all of it, but like, it didn't feel cohesive. Yeah, it was it was messy, mm-hmm. and that scene. So that scene in the the law school dinner where he's trying to get in with people at law firms and get an interview. When that when the camera started to pan over the utensils on the table, I was like, oh my god, no, they're not going to do the thing where he doesn't know what fork to use. Which I feel like you've seen in so many other like fish out of water stories, and I was like, that's such lazy storytelling. But I was when I was talking to somebody that had read the book. She brought up that scene unprompted, so I was like, okay, that actually happened to him. It wasn't Hollywood just writing that in, like, look, like, he doesn't know how to eat dinner. Like... Uh, yeah, I agree. I agree. Look, and like, it's like I said, I don't want to criticize, like, I can't say that these, that, like, it's a memoir. It's like, most of these things did really happen to this guy, so I can't be like, oh, that's not really authentic. Like, that would never happen, because it did happen. But from a storytelling perspective in the movie the way it was framed and like, like he looks at the fork and his, his like vision goes blurry and like, I'm like, all right, well, you know what? Like that, it was just a little heavy handed. It, it was a little yeah. heavy handed. <laughs> and like there, I think uh, this is uh, something I read in one of the reviews of the movie is that they felt, um, I wish I could remember which review it was. Uh, maybe Rolling Stone. I don't, I don't want to miscredit it, but basically they said that they felt that they were selectively like the scenes that they chose to lift out of the book and use in the movie were like the most obvious examples of him not fitting in at Yale or like in a community like Yale and that there might have been more subtle ways or just better ways to tell the story in film. Not necessarily that, not necessarily to make something up, but just choose one, choose a different one of his experiences 
or just the way that you the way that you portray it in the film don't make it this huge like where he has to run out of the room because he doesn't even call his girlfriend because he doesn't know what fork to use like like there so it really happened that this guy like let's say it didn't uh, well, well i don't want to harp on this too much but it, like it really happened to him that he didn't know what fork to use but he doesn't have to run out of the room and have this like frantic conversation with his girlfriend he, he could just say like it, you can you can relay the point that it's awkward without having that whole big deal you know what i mean yeah i i'm all for stories of the human experience and triumph and and breaking out of you you know a bad upbringing of where you came from i just felt like this movie i it felt like the main character didn't have a lot of pride for where he came from and what he overcome or overcame and I felt the love for his grandmother, Glenn Close's character, which he, you know, he went to live with her when uh, his mom, Amy Adams' character, you know, became really addicted and couldn't do it anymore. But I just felt like present day JD still had so much resentment for where he came from and not pride of, like, this is, like, this is where I came from and this is what I am now and these these experiences shaped me to be a stronger person. It, I don't know. I feel like things got lost in translation for me. Yeah. Although, yeah, I agree. But that, but again, that might not be this guy's, that's not his truth, right? Maybe he isn't proud of where he came from and that's fine. Like, I think one of the, I think the, what I got was that he separating himself from that stuff. Not, I mean, be proud of some of the stuff, but like separating himself from his family and from his upbringing and not letting that define him was actually his, like his, like that's his character arc. I mean, even though this is a real guy, that's his character arc was like being able to separate from that. So he might be proud of certain aspects, but there's a lot of stuff that he's actually ashamed of and not proud of. And so that's, that's what he had to get over. He was hiding it from his girlfriend. I mean, he didn't want to tell his girlfriend that his mother was struggling with addiction, which I, I understand that level of shame, although I've never had anything like that in my life. Thank God. Um, but I understand like not wanting to tell people about something you're ashamed of. And so that's, so not having pride. I mean, I'm sure there were some things he was prideful in. Like when, uh, the guy after dinner said redneck and he really, that at that point he yeah. really stood up and said, no, we don't use that word. We don't say redneck. And like, so there were some things that he did have pride in. So I think I didn't, I didn't necessarily have a problem with that aspect of it. I think that he, as far as like pride versus shame, I think that was, there was a reasonable balance there. And, I, and that part of the that message, I think, was reasonably delivered that he needed to escape his past and like not let his past define him and let like not let it prevent him from chasing his dream of becoming a lawyer. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I don't think I don't think I think that part was OK for me. Yeah. <laughs> I think I feel cheated out of the the bigger context of that area of the country and and just, you know, why why they're you know maybe feel forgotten and the problems that they're facing and why they can't get the help that they need and it um and you see a li- you see a little bit of that when Amy Adams gets admitted to the emergency room when she um ODs and relapses and they're like yeah like she's got to be out of here at you know three in the afternoon today like we don't have any beds for her um that really that that really struck a chord for me. Um, the 
the mental health care system in this country is so broken. So I think they depicted that uh, pretty well, but I wanted I wanted some more. Yeah, I wonder though. I I wonder how much of it is people projecting like their expectations on the movie right because the book has this reputation of being like because it came out when it did during the 2016 election and people kind of it had this reputation of like explaining why um why these people that feel forgotten would turn to a guy like donald trump and um because it had that reputation i think people were maybe expecting the movie to offer that same explanation quote unquote i mean even though the, even though the book I, I don't even think he intended to do that with the book i mean like th- that th- that's what i mean by projecting like was i was the goal of either the book or the film to like shed a light on the plight of these people like i don't think so i think the guy was just trying to tell, tell his story he felt he had an interesting story his family had a really dark history he escaped it and he might not have been trying to say like this is this is like this problem that needs a light shined on it. And like these people really need help and they don't know what, you know? And so by people not being happy that that message wasn't delivered, like what, is that what they were even trying to do? Like, you know what I mean? Like, is it right for you to be upset that a message was delivered that maybe wasn't even supposed to be there in the first place? Right. The book, the memoir is called Hillbilly Elegy, a memoir of a family and culture in crisis. So I feel like we got the family part, but I'm losing the culture part. Right. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I didn't. I didn't feel that the culture part was there either. Um, I guess maybe I'm just forgiving them too much because I'm saying maybe they didn't intend to put it there, but maybe. Again, maybe they were, and if they did, then I didn't. Then I didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought the acting, Amy Adams and Glenn Close. I mean, those two can you know, act out the phone book and I'd watch it. I, I love Amy Adams so much. And they're acting with what they had to work with. I, I thought they were good. Yeah. Yeah. I thought there was, there was multiple good performances in this. I, Glenn Close in particular, I really thought was great. Um, the, the makeup was amazing. I thought, I mean, they really, they really, and, and actually if you watch the credits and you see the real, uh, Mama was the name of the character. She was the, she was JD's grandma. And, uh, in the post credits, they show some real like home video footage, and they really made Glenn Close look just like her. And there was a lot of makeup involved, but like she she did an amazing job. Like really, that's to me was the one that really stood out. The performance that stood out was Glenn Close. Yeah, the way and shout out to Matthew Mungle who did the prosthetics, her her nose in particular and the makeup. But yeah, the way she just walked and like her posture, and she really just embodied uh, Maymaw's whole whole vibe I guess <laughs> yeah and and I in terms of awards I could I could see the two of them getting nominated um, yeah absolutely for acting. I think I mean as Amy Adams did I think she did great to me well like as I've just I feel like I've seen her give better performances I mean and I'm oh, not really agreed. I'm, yeah, oh I'm my not God, really yeah. a great one to judge but like um and maybe it was just the role I mean like she she I think she portrayed addiction very well and like there were some very some really emotional scenes with her that she did great in but that was it it felt like there was just like a few really high intense scenes and then there wasn't really much else for her it was pretty much like a one-tone performance for Mm -hmm. her what she had to work with and i'm it's not her fault it's just the way the script was written right i mean it's really when these things like it's not really anybody's fault right because there's so many things that go into the interpretation of what like it's the actor it's the director it's the writer like i mean there's no one if if something falls flat 
there's no one person to blame. And, no. and who's to say it will fall flat for everybody? I mean, that's just us. Yeah. I, till this day, still think Amy Adams should have won the Oscar for American Hustle. Jennifer Lawrence actually got it, who was incredible in American Hustle, but I thought Amy Adams was so great. I also thought she was really great in Arrival. Actually, when I think back on all of her performances, Arrival, to me, really stands out. Like, for some reason, and I also just love that movie, maybe more than most, but like... Oh, Arrival's an incredible movie. Yeah. Yeah, I love Arrival, definitely. Was she nominated for that? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I feel like sci-fi movies like that don't typically get nominations. But yeah. you want to take a guess and I'll look it up? I'm going to say, I know Arrival, the film itself, got nominated for stuff. I'm going to say she did not get nominated for her performance. Mm, accolades. Best sound editing. Nominated yeah. for best picture, best director, best adapted screenplay. Adams received nomination for best actress. At the Oscars? At the Oscars. Hey. She did not win. I don't know who won. No, she didn't. Yeah. 74. What year was... Uh, the was 74th annual, which was in 2017. So, was she nominated for lead? Yeah. Lead. Okay. 2017. Let's see if I can pull yeah, from I've my... I've got it up in front of me now, so... My I'll... brain here. <laughs> um, was that Olivia Coleman in The Favorite? It was not. Who was it? This film also almost won Best Picture. Oh, Emma Stone, La La Land. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which she was great in that movie, too, so I get it. But, um, okay, I'm glad Amy Adams got nominated. I really thought that was a great performance. Oh, she was great. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still stand by that sci-fi and horror need more respect at uh, the major award ceremonies. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you... Well, number one, I think a lot of them... Well, not a lot of them, but some of them transcend to, like, transcend their genre, right? She was, like... So the fact that she got nominated for Best Actress, that's huge. I like that. Um, but I think at least give them a category, right? Yeah. Like if, like, if you don't think that sci-fi movies can be the best film or horror movies can be best film, then give them a category. Or like, like think about performances like, um, well, this may be a stretch and probably me showing bias, but like Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man in Endgame or Infinity War. Like I'm not saying he deserves to be nominated for Best Actor or Best Supporting, maybe because nobody was really a lead in that, but like... There were some great moments in those movies, like, and I think those performances deserve to be honored in some way. I agree. I do. Um, I, I brought up Marvel because those are like typically the ones that people say are snubbed, right? Because they just won't consider a superhero movie. So stupid. What are you gonna do? Whatever. <laughs> Speaking of critics, um, <laughs> Hillbilly Elegy right now has what's the Rotten Tomatoes rating on this. 25? 25%. <laughs> yeah. I think that's harsh. I agree. I think it's very harsh. Yeah. What <laughs> Look, would you I give it? I don't think... Before the movie came out, it was getting Oscar buzz. And I think maybe maybe for Glenn Close and Amy Adams, because of 2020, it can still be there. Um, but 25 is harsh for the movie. I would put it somewhere in the 50s, probably. What's, think... ro- what's rotten? 60? 60 and Below is Rotten? Mm, yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd probably, I'd still say it's Rotten. I'd say it's Rotten only because with the names attached and, like, the way this has, like, been touted as going to be, like, this huge 2020 blockbuster Oscar movie, it definitely, I don't think it delivered on that. But 
25 definitely seems harsh. <laughs> really like, bad, but I think it was better than that. On the performances alone, like, I think it deserves to be higher than that. Like, yikes. 25. Yeah. But there's, there's movies, I think, I've looked up Remember the Titans on Rotten Tomatoes before, which I love. Love, love. And it's definitely rotten. Yeah, there's definitely, I mean, Rotten Tomatoes is not, you can't use it as, like, the Bible. Because there's some movies that are <laughs> beloved, and, like, cult classics that have, like, 13, and then they have, like, but everybody you talk to says, oh, I love that movie. So it's like, okay, right. well, why doesn't it have 13? Because some movie critic gave it a zero that doesn't get, like, Rocky Horror Picture Show or something. Yeah. Yeah, Rotten Tomatoes is a roller coaster, that website. Just, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. go on there expecting one thing, and you're not going to get it. But that pretty much wraps up what we thought of Hillbilly Elegy. It had so much Oscar potential um, and just not a lot of love and care was given to the story for me. Yeah. And it's like I said, I struggled to wonder whether did it like was there actually a problem with the message or is it people projecting like what they think the message should be? I don't know. But whatever it is, it didn't translate for either of us. So, um, yeah, I was, I was a little disappointed, but I think it's, it was, if, it, if I look at it with a smaller scope, I think it told a pretty good story about this particular family and their struggles and a little bit of their family history. And that, that was compelling enough for me to want to watch the movie and to recommend it to others. Yeah. Well, that concludes our episode guys. If you like what you heard here today, please, rate and subscribe yeah and you can find us on instagram and twitter at friends like films you can also email us if you want at friends like films at gmail.com yeah thanks for joining us everybody uh our next movie uh because christmas is coming up we are going to do a holiday episode and we're going to choose one that Brittany loves and one that somehow i've avoided seeing over the years uh the holiday but we're going right. to change that real quick. Yeah, I think it's about time I caught that one. Definitely. <laughs> well, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. See you next time.